Jason Durkee has been delivering learning and development solutions to clients in Japan, where he's lived for approximately 28 years. And his training journey began in that country back in 1993, when he joined a startup as a corporate trainer. And he's worked his way up from trainer to instructional designer to manager to director, and then started working with his own direct clients. And in that time, Jason reckons he's developed, co-developed, or contributed to somewhere in the region of 200 or more training programs and workshops. What about you? How many learning programs have you designed? Um, Do you follow a process? Do you know whether your workshop or coaching program is the right thing, aimed at the right audience at the right time? What kinds of conversations do you have with stakeholders to find out whether you need to design such a program and invest time and effort in launching such a program? And this is something which I think many people struggle with because we feel we have this notion, we have this belief that we have the solution and we rush into producing it, designing it, launching it and selling it without actually testing it. And that's really what today's all about. So in today's episode, talking with Jason, how to research the training market, how and why to create what we call an MVP, that's minimum viable product. Think of this like your concept, your proof of value. So you're ensuring you're selling the right thing to the right person. How to get client feedback early, how to get your first workshop to market, why to involve customers in shaping the design of that product, which testimonials to get from customers early on initially, and of course, what to do to launch your training product. This is the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark, and it's my privilege every single Thursday to deliver a program to you. It's an audio program, so every Thursday we've chats with guests or it's occasionally one-to-one where I'm talking to you wherever you are, in the car, on the train, traveling, on holidays. It's It's a show which I think helps many people uh, just like you and I, because if you're in the world of training people, facilitating workshops, consulting with people, helping corporate clients, direct clients, indirect clients to get the very best from their people in a range of areas, whether it's leadership, resilience, sales, whatever it is that you do as a training professional, this is the show for you. And it's my commitment every Thursday to have a program ready for your ears, wherever you are in the world. Can I ask you therefore, please to subscribe because it costs you absolutely nothing and means so much to me and the team behind the podcast without which I could not produce the podcast every single Thursday. You'll find podcast episodes past, present, and future on your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. The whole list of which, of course, I don't have because there are so many podcast platforms out there. If you'd like to contribute to the show or make a recommendation for guests or content, please do that too. And you can reach me via mark at trainingbusiness.com. I read emails personally and, of course, reply individually. Now, I mentioned before the music that we have an interesting, very, very interesting episode today because I'm speaking with Jason live from Tokyo. It's quite late where I am right now, about half past 11 at night, but it's my 
um, delight, in fact, to talk to Jason because he's got some wonderful experience over 28 years of working with corporate clients in Japan. But we're not going to look at the episode today and the content today through the prism of the Japanese market. This is something which is applicable, I think, for anyone out there if you are selling your own, designing your own, launching your own training products and programs. How do you know that it's what the market needs? And how do you go about launching it in a way that's going to be successful? Jason, hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, morning time where you are. You're in Tokyo. I'm in Ireland. It's dark. Uh, so it doesn't get more international than this. Um, the reason I've asked you on the show is because you have a particular set of experiences at the risk of sounding like Liam Neeson in, in that movie, <laughs> a particular set of skills. But um, you've been living in Japan for nigh on 28 years and you joined, uh, you entered the training world as a corporate trainer. Let's just give us, uh, give the audience some understanding of how you worked your way up from trainer to instructional designer, to manager, to director, and then began working with your own clients. Sure. So my story is, is that I'm, originally from Seattle in the United States. I was born and raised as just a, a regular guy there. It's not as if, you know, military or maybe some sort of embassy government uh, expat, none of that. But for a short time during the late 1980s, Japan was a really big deal. And anyway, the kind of feeling at the time was that, you know, Japan's going to eat everyone's lunch. I was like, wow, if these guys are so cool, I better go check it out. I went for university, I liked it and stayed. Um, now, one of the things that was really, really expensive at that time, and I tried a whole bunch of different part-time jobs, basically just to, to put food on the table. Some of them were rather silly, like I was a, a translator at a company that made chicken deboning machines, and so we would, you know, put lots of chicken into this crazy machine, and out would it would come with no bones. Also, like these fake videos where like you would get eaten by a dog and whatnot but among those various jobs that i did one of the early ones when i was still in college is i was a corporate trainer and i liked that upon graduation i was with a kind of venture company we got a huge contract it was a, a one-year thing the biggest in the industry i was like okay this is good so my first year out of college you know there we are i'm on like the equivalent of the financial times you know and i think i'm really cool you know 40 trainers that i'm supposed to be in charge of don't have any idea really what i'm doing but anyway for about 10 years went from trainer to creating material planning programs uh selling it kind of the whole gamut 2003 set up my own shop and i've been doing that since and it's still a lot of fun but the important thing is odd market because it's japan and i'm not japanese and also for a very long time, starting at an early age. That's maybe the moral of that story. Okay, so you, in that time, you reckon you've developed, co-developed, or contributed to probably in the realm of 200 or more training programs. Yes, and one reason why it's so many is that um, a lot of clients have internal content that they want kind of organized or put together into some sort of program that they think will be more effective. So we don't have expertise, of course, on 200 different content areas. But because we're good at designing programs, um, we get that type of opportunity. Okay. So you have also developed um, 
your own methodology. You've got something called practical training transfer, and uh, you've you've developed something which you feel meets a need in the market. And I think that's the theme this morning on this episode, which is if people want to produce something which they sell, what process do they go through to develop something which they can sell? And it goes from ideation concept through. So seven steps might be the following. One, to research the needs of your prospective clients. And that could involve conversations. And we'll go through all of these steps individually, the two of us this morning. Um, Two, number two, to develop a minimum viable product, MVP, which of course uh, is really a, a down and dirty version of a program just to get some quick feedback. And we're trying to eliminate any tendency for perfectionism, which of course haunts many people. We feel we have to have the a fully developed product before we can go out and use it, which is not necessarily true. Step number three is to get feedback from people to help shape that um, outline further. Number four is to get it out there as a product which you can sell, you can coach, you can use to facilitate workshops, etc. Get a first client, someone you have a good relationship with who can be honest with you, knowing it's not perhaps fully fledged, and then we'll help you to refine that further with concrete, honest feedback. Get some testimonials, which you can leverage to have something to talk about in the marketplace. And lastly, to launch the thing fully. So there are the seven steps this morning, which we'll go through. Let's start with with your experience of, say, a program where you feel or you know there is a market need and you want to confirm this with some kind of research. What kind of conversations or steps do you go through to establish whether there is a need and it's viable? Okay. Maybe as a, a quick step back for a second, um, maybe someone with more of a strategic management consulting type of bend would regularly make like these complicated process. Here's the six steps for success. What we're talking about today is not a super strategic or earth-shattering, fantastic um, plan. True. But what it is, yeah. is after trying a lot and failing a lot, I found that this is kind of the the logic for what works and also explains what doesn't. And the feeling today is that I really love this podcast because it's about helping up-and-coming or small-scale training businesses do better work. And so what I hope is that some of these pieces, which is kind of a design thinking type of vibe overall, might have some details that help someone. Sorry. So we'll go back to needs. So yeah, when you if you're going to try and make something new, you can start with like your specialty. You can say, oh, I'm an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, so I'm going to make something about that. Or you can look at um, my client is a pharmaceutical company. They're constantly releasing new, very difficult and technical-related products, and they need to train their salespeople. Why don't I create something for that? Or you can go kind of more general in the market like, okay, no one really knows what hybrid work is, but – it's going to be a mess, and people should probably be able to do it better rather than worse. So why don't I try and do something that helps that? Those are kind of like the, the different directions you can think from. What we found is that what really works the best is looking at a kind of general need in the market, and that can be usually 
communicated most effectively if you talk about it within the industry trends of the client when you start talking to real clients. So for example, if you're dealing with uh, car companies, you want to talk about, oh yes, the shift to eco is going to require new processes. So you need to think about maybe like agile development or something like that, whatever. But look for needs in general shifts and think really about the the learners at work. What is the situation they're in that they're going to struggle with or that they can't do now? If you really focus on the application context and reverse engineer from there, you have a really good chance of getting something done. And let me give you a couple examples of what didn't work, where it just blew up in my face and we failed miserably, and maybe some that did. So like one that doesn't work is about maybe 20 years ago, there was a big boom in uh, facilitation became a, a really popular kind of concept and everyone was rushing out to buy facilitation training for you know meeting facilitation. And I was like, okay, well, that's something that we're really good at, particularly as trainers. I mean, we have, you know, high-level facilitation skills. And I made a two-day program. It was based on another one that was really successful we had for presentation. There's like basics on day one with lots of pinpoint practice. Day two is much more integrated practice, recorded on video, play it back, analyze, etc. We put some interesting tweaks in here. And for the at the end of two days, it really was like a, a diet advertisement. You know, they start off with a really bo- boring everyone is sleeping meeting at the day two. You know, we're generating ideas, you're ma- getting decisions, you're analyzing problems, everything's done smooth, involving people, and within time, it was from a skill up perspective, really, really good. Well, okay, people who took that, they go back to their office. Did any meetings get better? None at all. Complete miserable failure. And the reason is, is that the problem with their in-context meetings is much more influenced by tradition, the same people sitting in the same conference room with the same power structure and the same uh, ingrained habits could not easily be solved by the skill of facilitation. And so that's a case where even if you think that your product is good and maybe even the learning in the course is good, it's not going to help at all on the job. And that's a, a very sour lesson, but something that I see a lot when you start with content or like a a discipline. I'm going to teach about so-and-so. Go in the other direction. For example, when a client comes up to you with something really weird, they're like, "Um, we have a problem where, you know, maybe a couple decades ago, people were moving from a, a central office type of structure to a lot more email and then becoming uh, more geographically separated through virtual work, et cetera. What it really means is that more work goes to individual people and they kind of have to fend for themselves. Um, What happens then is that there's a problem where people who are not familiar with each other or don't have any sort of power relationship, when they need to collaborate and someone just ghosts you, it slows down work and creates a lot of trouble, tension, and delay. So the idea was like, how can we influence people who are not in our organization to basically send us information or do what we want or keep the ball rolling to make things go well. I don't even know the name of what that course is supposed to be. Um, It doesn't really fall nicely into any of the disciplines or competencies or skills that we typically talk about, but 
because they insisted on it, we made it. Um, and this is something that every large bureaucratic company is facing as a, as a problem. And so that's an example of instead of going from the start with this is the content I want to push, really think in the workplace, what are the issues or the problems or the challenges that people are facing? And then whatever it's called and whatever mix of stuff you need, try to fix that. So we could say, well, I think I know what it is and I'm going to call it this and, and it'll do this and it'll have these documents and these slides, etc. And then we find there's actually no market for it, or at least there is, but it's not defined the way you think it is. Instead, we, we go hunting for a problem and say, what is the pain that people have? How do they describe that pain? And what can I put together to quickly address that pain? Which kind of leads us to step two, the concept of MVP, which to some people might be new, minimum viable product. What does that mean? So MVP is kind of like the, the trendy IT way to say, make just a, a quick prototype, a rough version. I, I would say maybe in more practical language, it's like, if you're going to make a training program, at some point you'll have like a one-page little description of it. This would be like, if you were doing an open course, it kind of explains the outline. And it's like, does anyone want to take this? You know, so-and-so euros uh, sign up here. Okay. Behind that, when you really need a course, you have to have all of the text. You have to have all of the know-how. You need the slides. You need everything put together. But what I've really found is that if you make too much ahead of time, you usually shoot yourself in the foot. Not only because you're wasting energy, but if you try to do like an Apple approach where you have an idea and before unleashing it on the world, you really work hard to make it perfect. It's beautiful. You have nice rounded corners. Just the, the glisten off the glass is so beautiful. Maybe that works for Apple and many times it doesn't, but that's not good for us. And so what I found is most useful is you can't get feedback and you can't talk to people about something that doesn't exist. You have to have something for them to look at and some words that you can explain, but you also can't make too much. It's this kind of early stages gray zone thing. And so what I would say you need is a concept in this course, whether it's e-learning or classroom or remote, it doesn't really matter, but here's the goals, here's the people, here's the problem it's going to try and solve, here's kind of what the content areas are, but anything more than that is too much. So you make that, and then you take it to real people to get some feedback. Right. So what we're, we're working on here, it's actually not creating a finished product. We're defining something through defining the problem and what might be best to address this. And we're involving other people in shaping that outline. That's the thing, of course, is not to keep this to yourself. The idea of a minimum viable product is, in an agile sense, get this out to the market or get this out to people whose opinion you trust and get them to help you shape this. Exactly, because typically clients own the application environment. The learners have problems in real life that they need to solve. They also have goals that they're trying to achieve to work better. We don't live in that zone. So what we re need to do is say, well, I think this is a solution, but as an expert of the problem, can you think about what goes on in regular life and all those learners on a day-to-day -day basis and they're dealing with their teams and the kind of mess that you see with them 
does this seem like the right way to solve that? And if they did this, would it help them in that situation? And with insightful, smart clients, they can just give you really, really um, useful feedback and direction. And because it's not fully created, they don't feel bad telling you to change everything. Yeah. So we're we're not looking again for perfection. We need to be open to critique and feedback. It may very well be that someone says, that's not what we need, in which case all you have done is wasted perhaps some some time, uh, but you haven't invested resources, the investment of which you can't recover. So if we go down the path of creating something in its entirety, which does not address a business need, that's kind of money up in smoke. So Step three is getting feedback, trusted feedback, viable feedback, and this keeps us on the right path. So ne- number four is to get this out there. At what point is a is a training program ready to just even, you know, dip our toes in the water to good enough to just present, not perfect, but good enough to be something that we could try out and test and get some further feedback on? My feeling is that you shouldn't spend the effort and the time and the energy to really refine it and flesh it out and make it solid with complete texts and activities. Maybe there's videos involved. Um, there's likely a, a slide deck, etc. That should not happen without one real client who intends to do it. And to give you an example, what we talked about like at that MVP stage, um, just last week, there's a, a couple things that we created back right around Lehman time, this is like 2008, 2009, that for whatever reason, people weren't very interested in it. And I just let it sleep. And it has been you know, dormant for over a decade. And just last week, out of the blue, three different companies all want something that is really related to that. So we dust it off, we update it to match the environment now, and then when they're ready to roll, we'll make it work. So what we want to do here, okay, you need one client who is going to give you the chance to, to really make this work. And it's worth noting that that's almost always going to be an existing client. And you should really, really be thankful for this um, because they're taking a risk and allowing you to make this work and you should really make it together with them. The first one might not be your totally perfect, fully applicable program that you want to spread widely across the world, but just make sure it nails what their needs are because they're giving you the opportunity to actually make it work. Now, an interesting question here that people have asked me before is, if I have a product which is an MVP or something like that, should I charge for this? And I think that's a great question. And I would, I would, um, I would say this, if you don't or aren't willing to charge for it, when will you ever charge for it? On the other hand, if you don't charge for it, um, does that send out the wrong signal? This is invaluable. This is a real risk. And and it's not something that you should waste time on. So there's a kind of a psychology here. What, what are your thoughts on the, the merits of charging for something which is not yet complete? Because I'm of the opinion that we should, however small. In general, um, you would always charge. Now, this is an area where, say it's a, a training program, just for to make it easy to imagine, we'll say maybe like a, a two or three day classroom thing that happens, you know, in a series, maybe like, you know, three times over six months or something. Okay. Of course, you're going to charge for that teaching time, the classroom, the delivery, et cetera. Um, 
one thing that we do end up doing, which is going to show up more in a second, is in these early stages, you do kind of bend over backwards to absolutely ensure it's a success. And there's a lot more work because you're not used to it and the assets and whatnot don't exist ahead of time. But there's no reason you should be, as say, a training company delivering for free. That is not sustainable. The, the only exception is if it's a minor add-on. So for example, we started really pushing learning transfer trying to get people to support application on the job a lot more. The clients don't have a budget for that. They have no experience with this. They have no evidence that it's going to work for them. And so something like maybe action plans or follow-up telephone calls or something, a small addition, in that case, you might have to do you know the first one free or at a highly reduced rate or some sort of bargain, like, we'll do this for you, but will you please speak at our event? Something like that. But in general... You do charge because it's good, and you make sure that it's so good they love it and it's valuable. Right. Agreed. And and I think that puts that one to bed, because if you don't charge for something, you're sending yourself also a signal that it's not really worth something to someone else. If it is valuable and you truly believe it, it, it is, then you should be putting some kind of price on your time, um, however small. It also, I think, makes it difficult for people to justify um, investing in something if there's no price attached. It almost tells them, you know, well, what do I get for this? Um, so there's some psychology around that. So we've got a product which we're shaping. We have a first client. We now want to get some feedback from them. And I think that's a very valuable point. It's a testimonial because if we leverage this, we can use this then to attract like customers, other people who are in the same boat with the same challenges for which our product solves problems. So when it comes to getting testimonials, I have my own view on this. Um, I, I'm, I like to be very specific about what I want people to say, not, not to put words in their mouth, but I want to use a model to get people to give me something I can use. Because if you ask people for feedback, you just get some generic comment, which could be two or three lines, nothing specific. So when it comes to getting people to say the kind of thing about the program that you can use to attract more people, what are your views on that? Sure. Let's, let's break this into a couple steps. The first one, this should go without saying, but when you're trying something for the first time, let's be absolutely certain that you give it your best shot. You won't be prepared. The materials aren't as refined as they would be in general. But if you throw your best people at it and you give a really, really big, sincere effort to make it work, it usually will be a, quite a success. And let's make sure that we have that smashing success, especially on these kind of uh, early test projects. Okay, once you have assured that it's a big success, the second thing I want to worry about is for the client internally, they've taken a risk and they're trying something new. And I want them to really be able to internally support that to make it pay off for them. And one of the problems with training is that it's not tangible. It, it doesn't, it's not a product, product, you can't touch it. And particularly for people who don't come watch and see exactly what's going on, they, they don't really know what's going on, whether it was cool or not. And for the most part, you'll see a lot of executives when you say learning or training or whatever, all they're doing is referring to their own personal limited experience and stereotypes about whether it's good or bad. So 
we spend a lot of time really kind of documenting and measuring and trying to create. Usually, we make a, a video of the any sort of new training we do, kind of recording all the different steps, showing what's going on with the real people, just so other people internally for the client can see, wow, that is really cool. And this is super effective. And you'll put some energy into uh, measuring the results. I like the Brinkerhoff success case method type of approach. That's a fancy way to say just catch people doing good, applying it on the job and you know, document those success stories. But the whole, the next thing you really want to do is help the client who put their neck on the line to give you an opportunity, really get a payback internally. And also that'll kind of protect the program so it doesn't get nixed if that person gets promoted or whatnot. Once that has happened, then we can start thinking about ourselves. And so for that, sure. Um, Ideally, you have that kind of video of what was going on. Now, many times, because it has all the faces of the participants and whatnot, you can't really use it as is. But you can at least get some photographs, a little bit of interview, maybe some, as you mentioned, more of a traditional testimonial, like an interview with a client to put on the web page, or maybe something printed. It could be a video or podcast type of thing. Any of these are fine. Make sure you nail the program get them taken care of internally, and then finally do what is possible with the considerations of you know, information sharing and how much they want to spread to the world to let other people know. What we try to do, and which seems to work the best, is if you can, have the client kind of give a little presentation. It could be live or maybe canned if you want, where they kind of tell the story of what they did. You know, Here is our company. Here is the... The issues we had, we tried this, it was difficult, but then we overcome it, and here's the results. And that kind of story spoken in a specific business context by a neutral client is really easy to understand and persuasive for other people. And that's really what you would try to get. Yeah, I like I like the story arc idea of, of the challenge before this program was implemented the the metrics in the context of the struggles we had we were losing people we were losing clients we were losing business um the before story the solution is then what you as a training provider have have done for me and the results is the after and the kind of the delta the gap between those two that this program is closed that's the stuff that we want to get out there as a message so people recognize that um Yes, I recognize those challenges. I recognize those problems. Those are the ones I have too. So this program could potentially close that gap. And the numbers that you are selling here, the metrics, the outcome, the results, that's the kind of stuff I want to get to. And the danger is that if we don't have those kinds of pieces of feedback, it's just empty feedback. So yeah, it was a lovely program. They were nice guys. We really enjoyed it. It's like that level one feedback, you know, for training. It's It was great. We had a great day out. What does that actually mean? So if, if we want to get feedback, which we can use, we can leverage to attract other people, uh, higher paying clients, we need to be, I would say, coaching our, our clients very clear about the kinds of feedback that we want so we can leverage this. Um, if you think of it, big brands don't lead advertising to chance they know what they want people to say. They know the kinds of testimonials that they need 
to attract people. So when it comes to then step seven, the full launch, we've we've gone through this process of the research. We've developed a minimum down and dirty viable product, um, just enough to get something out there. Uh, we've gotten some feedback on this to shape it further. We've produced something. We've run our first workshops with it. We've got our first client with it. Perhaps someone who already trusts us, knows us, is willing to take a chance with us. Um, we get then more concrete feedback and some more, let's say, uh, development of that program, of that workshop. The next thing now is to say, let's go for the full Monty. We now have a, a credible track record of this program, even solving something for one client. Um, what's your view now on the full launch to just now get this out there and start generating income from it actively? Sure. This is, I think, more difficult than we expect, and we end up constantly shooting ourselves in the feet here. Um, typically, built on the momentum and the success of the trial, you know, you feel like you're you're walking on water. You know, this is the the best thing since sliced bread. Wow, you know, we're gonna take over the world. And if you're in that sort of uh, mindset you're not talking about the customer in their own languages when you speak with them. So one of the things that's really hard here, and it seems to take a lot longer than I would hope, is to find how do I talk about this program or solution or whatever? What are the words I use? What are the pictures I show? How do I communicate this in a way that really resonates with clients? And most likely, in the early stages, you're you'll spend way too much time and effort talking about the, the training itself and also the, case, the one case you have. And they'll, you'll end up unconsciously kind of pigeoning, pigeonholing yourself. They'll be like, oh, well, that only works with uh, advertising agencies, but we're a finance company. And you want to make sure that it, you're, again, really talking about not this program so much as you have to go back to those initial needs and say, okay, if I'm talking to you know, this retailer who sells fast fashion, okay, in your fashion world, do these sort of needs exist? And when they do, you can kind of speed up through. But again, how to communicate is important and really keep it focused on application, problems, client needs, and don't be too excited to jump and show them your new shiny uh, thing, which like you think is fantastic since it's the thing you made recently and you're coming off a big success. And this can take time. Yeah. And, and not to give up. Uh, and that's it. It's that there is probably further refinement needed. And um, you never know where this program you have run out now becomes something else or you discover, you know, there's a second need. I can give you a good example of that. So um, when I left in 2003 to start my own company, I wanted to focus on creative thinking and innovation. I spent a lot of time uh, creating training around these topics. There is no competition in Japan. It was just kind of like a, a wide open zone. And Immediately, I got a really big, good first contract. And like we talked just now, we nailed the delivery. It was totally fantastic. We followed everyone up with real on-the-job application results because the topic is innovation. It, by nature, means they're creating something new. So it's easy to say that that wouldn't have happened without the training. I mean, we are just collecting success stories and results like you can't believe. You know, and I was like, this is great. I'm the man. Well, okay. 
Um, that particular client stopped the program due to the Lehman shock, and no one showed up. Not a single other client ever would talk to us about innovation for years. And I tried to push it. I tried to nudge. We, we tried a whole bunch of different ways, different communication, different application tweaks. No one cared. And then about 2015, it started creeping up again. And now it's one of our you know, top three kind of real core programs that we do regularly across a wide range of industries. And people really, really like it. But sometimes you'll see that that first kind of clever client was really ahead of the curve. And maybe either the market isn't ready or your communication isn't refined yet. Sometimes you have to wait. But don't give up. And that also doesn't mean do nothing else and bang your head against the wall like a Roomba. Put it aside, make something else, keep going. And eventually over time, these things do usually come back and help at some time. And I think that if we're doing those first four steps um, rigorously, we're minimizing the possibility of what you just described. If we are keeping our ear to the ground, having close conversations with people whose opinion we trust, um, involving the client and shaping things so that they are aligned with their specific requirements, there's less chance, not completely no chance, but less chance of us producing a flop, right? If, if, we're, if we're involving people producing research-driven programs that meet market needs at that point in time, that address real-world problems, and we focus on solving those needs, it's less likely to flop than if we were to go and say, I know exactly what I love to train or talk about to run workshops on, and um, I'm then going to plug it and, and find someone to buy it. Absolutely. You have less chance to flop because you're not doing it in a vacuum uh, without any awareness of real client application needs. And also by kind of having those gateways where you don't do too much ahead of time, you're minimizing the, the loss and disappointment. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, logic and, and rationale. What we're saying, of course, there are times when you might just bypass all this or be tempted to bypass this because you think you know what the the market needs. So I would caution people because I've made that mistake myself is to is to go through that seven step process, talk to people, research, have client conversations, listen to feedback. What else have people done that's not worked? What have people done that has worked before we ever um, produce something in its entirety, uh, get something out there, get some quick feedback and, and, and shape it and be willing to learn, be humble. I don't know everything, but I'm willing to learn. And if the people are who are going to pay you for that program aren't involved, it kind of doesn't make sense to me, actually. Uh, why else would you try and sell something if the people involved in buying it aren't necessarily aligned or involved in its co-creation? Um, loads more we could talk about. So we'll, we'll bring this to an end. Um, Jason, where can people find out more about you? You're in Tokyo, um, and you've lots of ideas with all the experience you have over the years. You can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Durkee, that's D-U-R-K-E-E. -E. Um, in Japan, I'm president of a training company, Idea Development. Our homepage is pretty shabby because that doesn't affect business in any way. It's a very face-to-face, old-school relationship um, type of business here in Japan. Also, our homepage is full of chicken scratch Japanese, which isn't that useful. Um, one thing, over the past 
I don't know, maybe seven or eight years, I've really worked hard to try and focus on learning transfer to help us get better results in the workplace from training we do. And we did a lot of research about that. We have done a lot of experimentation. And this has been a topic that I think a lot of other people are interested in. So we kind of spun that out for a, a more global audience, which has a lot more English. And that little partner initiative is called Practical Training Transfer, PTT. If you go there, there actually is a, a lot of free information that has some good advice about like, here is how I take my good training and maybe get it used more on the job so I can get better results and keep my clients happy. Right. And that's trademark. That's your IP and that's a tr practical training transfer.com. That's right. Brilliant. Jason, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Thank you. My sincere thanks to Jason for speaking to me today from Tokyo and my extra huge thanks to you for taking the time to listen to us chat. It's a privilege to know that you're out there and of course to know that you're finding value in the show. I would like you therefore to contribute to the show by getting in contact and letting me know what you find valuable about the show, the kinds of guests and content and topics you would like to hear on future episodes of the show. And the easiest way to do that is to simply write to me. That's mark at trainingbusiness.com. I read individual mails and I will reply to you personally if I can help you. And a couple of you have written to me recently about business challenges that you have. If I don't know the answer and I do not know all the answers to everything, I have a group of people out there who very happily will lend their expertise to your problem and help me to solve it for you. And I might even read that out if you're okay with that on the show. If not, I'm happy to email you back with that proposed solution. You can find episodes of the show, past, present, and future, on your podcast platform of choice. Can I ask you, therefore, please, just right now, to pause and to click on the subscribe button because this does a couple of things. It confirms that what we're doing is helpful to you. It helps to bring the show to other people just like you and I, people who are in the business of facilitation or coaching or consulting or training. And of course, it validates and lets you know when future episodes of the show appear on your podcast platform of choice. Please tell people about the show if you find this valuable. You know someone who's thinking of becoming a training consultant, or perhaps is in the early stages of that journey, I'd like to think that these episodes with the guests I have will help them on their training business journey. There is a fresh episode every Thursday without fail. Until next Thursday, look after yourself. Tune in next time. Take care. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.